Let's pray. God, thank you for the word. And God, uh, we pray that we can hear the word above the din of that, all that talking that's going on inside our head. May we be still and listen. Amen. There's a, a, a wonderful story that we're going to talk about today, and I am pretty excited about sharing it with you. Uh, Sophia alluded to it a few minutes ago, and uh, this is the story from Matthew 17. Six days later, and when they say that, they're talking about some pretty big events that took place. It was one of the events was when um, Peter tried to talk Jesus out of doing what he needed to do, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I already heard that stuff in the desert. So six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And if you wish, I'll make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one there except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And um, we could go a, a lot of different directions with this, and so I'm just going to put one thing to rest, and then I'd like to change, I'd like to switch paths. The one thing to rest is this mysterious, tell no one about this. Well, they hadn't even gotten to the point where they could accept that Jesus was the Messiah, let alone getting to the point where they could accept that he was transfigured. So it's better left till after the resurrection. So Jesus is just saying, it's not ready any more than you were ready. So let's put that to rest. But let me ask you this question. What's the one thing you deeply, deeply want more than anything for your children, for their lives? You don't have to answer me, but I want you to ask that self, yourself that question. Maybe it's a question that's so uh, familiar to you. One thing, that if you could only choose one thing, what is that one thing you would want for your child? Okay, does God want less for you? That's my next question. The next question, what are the most important values you want your children to know and to embrace and to live by? Maybe three things that come to your mind. We're going we're gonna to be up in our head for a few minutes. Three things that come to mind that, you, that, that are the most important things you want your children to know and to embrace and to live. Does God want less than that for you? Now I want to ask yourself the most important question is why. Why do you want that one thing so deeply? What motivates you to want that? And why do you want your children to embrace and live by those particular principles or values? Why? And I think that the chances are pretty good that it has something to do with the way that you fell head over heels in love with this new little soul 
when they were born and before they had done a single thing to earn it except to take a deep breath and cry themselves silly. I think it must have something to do with that, that you love them so deeply that you want what? What is it you want? And is God capable of loving you as deeply as we love our own children? And I think most of us intellectually will say, well, yes, of course, God is God, and you know, God can love more deeply than, than me, and yet we, we live our lives very differently than that. Then I'd like you to consider what the landscape looks like of the, your children's lives, the way that you try to direct them and guide them and teach them and instill these things into their lives. What does that look like? What does it look like when, uh, when they're babies and how does it change over the years? The methods change as they grow. And, and what does it look like today for the way that you want so deeply for these things for your children to understand and to know? And then we go back and, and we start at the starting point. What's the starting point? So all of that is to lay the groundwork for saying that I believe that the scriptures are one long continuous narrative of that divine parent wanting the one thing for, the, for their child, which is all of humanity, and knowing that if they instill these, these wonderful values and these principles and all of these things, that they will get that one thing that they want. I think that the, the scriptures are, are one big, long uh, love letter to us, about us. And so it starts in the same way that our love starts with our, our children. We have uh, the very beginning. It starts with the need to provide a child at the very beginning, what is it they want from us? They don't want empty promises. Oh, I'm going to send you to college. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get you a car when you're 16. And I'm going to do all these things. No, what they want is food. And they want food and they want to be touched. And they want to be held. And they want to be loved. So the very first thing that we provide is shelter and protection and love and food. And we go back to this incredible love story, and we have Adam and Eve, who are no more than infants, who God is feeding and loving, and, and, and then they get a will of their own. And God says, okay, we're, let's, go to, let's go out to real life. Party's over. But I'm going to be with you, and we're going to go together. And that happens with our children, too. The, the t- moment comes when they turn around, they say, no. I remember when my son said no for the first time, and I rose up to my five feet tall, and I said, what did you say? You just crossed a line you can't deliver on. So anyway, we had a little come to Jesus meeting at that moment. But, and so he didn't say no for a few more years, and then, you know, he was bigger than me, and I said, okay, whatever. But I can't help but think that we all start the same way. And the way we love other people is we start, we don't start with, I love you, and they're hungry, and they need shelter, and they need food. We start with, let me give you food, let me give you shelter, let me give you protection. It, it all, do you see, it's all one thing. It's the most incredible thing. This, how we love 
how we are loved, and then how we love. And it's all played out in Scripture and in the development of human beings. We provide food, shelter, and protection as a basis for trusting us that we love you. If you don't provide those things, how do you trust that you're loved? Saying I love you and providing none of those basic necessities makes love irrelevant and it makes it inconsequential. But when you provide the need for the needs and then you couple that with this is what love looks like, then it becomes a major force, a force beyond any other force that can be reckoned with. So Jesus and Peter and James, they go up to the mountain to worship. And while there, they encounter Moses and Elijah, and this parental story unfolds. I mean, it's so incredible how the scriptures do this. Look at who you have on top of the mountain. Not only do you have the uh, ones that represent the law and represent the, the heritage of the, the whole narrative, but you have this Moses who as a baby was rescued from being killed. That's love. And was taken into the palace and fed and clothed, and that's love. And then you have Elijah, who was the teenager, who time after time after time, God came through and delivered and was steadfast and faithful. And so you have these two. And then you have Jesus, God in the flesh, who has walked with humankind since before time began, God, the same God who answered Moses when Moses said, who are you? And God said, I am. And Moses said, who? I am. In Hebrew, the word is really is. It's like God saying, is. This is the same God who asked his disciples, turned that question around and said, well, who do you say I am? Same question, thousands of years apart. Who do you say I am? I know who I am. Who do you say that I am? And over and over again, we find God saying, I am life. There is no other way to life. There is no other meaning to life. I am this thing you call love, and if you want to know love, you will know me. What is the one thing you want for your child? What is the one thing you want for your child? God wants the one thing for us because when we know love, we know God. And when we know God, we know love. And so this is another opportunity, this kind of mysterious story is another opportunity for God to teach the children Peter and, and James and John, who are going to be tasked with carrying this message to all the rest of the children through the generations. For that intent, they're trudging up this mountainside. And if love is that one thing that God deeply desires for his children, then worship is the most important uh, teaching, training ground for that lesson. And what is worship? Is this worship? Yes, we've come together and we proclaim and we praise. But this is just this is just the gathered moment of worship. Worship is so much bigger, so much more broad. Worship happens 
any time, in any place, you have the eyes to see and the heart to be open and perceive that God's extreme, abundant, delicious, lush presence is, is encompassing you, embracing you, loving you. That's worship. Every time you conceive or perceive of that, worship happens whenever you remember that you are the created that the the creature and that God is the creator. Every time you remember that relationship, that's worship. Worship happens when something is so beautiful and tender that it absolutely leaves you speechless and there's this big lump in your throat in which you can't even speak and the tears are running down your face. That's worship. Worship happens when you acknowledge that you can't do life on your own. When you acknowledge that you need God And God has created us to need each other. And that's worship. That's saying everything that you are and everything the way you've created me to be is is exactly how it is. And that's worship. Worship happens when you're at peace in your own skin. And you're grateful for your life just as it is without all the wanting and all the anguish and all the tearing apart of if only, if only, if only. Just where are you right now? Can you love this moment? When you aren't willing for your life to begin, when you hit some magic future mark, but you're alive to God right now, and you see, and you perceive, and you're, you're together. And still on that mountain, still, in, even in that moment, they were not yet grown. Because what they wanted to do was build uh, these booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, and they... In, in equal, so that they could worship all of them. And God, you know, says, guys, wait. Same words he said at the baptism. Let, let me tell you again. This is my son. Listen to him. See more. Listen to him. It's interesting that... Um, God's voice continues to guide and direct. And we do the same thing with our children. My children, my daughter's birthday is tomorrow, and she's going to be 34. What? She's older than me. And my son is 32. And I still feel that my job is still guiding and directing and and loving them and doing whatever I can for them. And, you know, so, you know, they're grown and I'm grown, but we're both still growing. And it, it, it occurs to me that um, this is just our job. I think it was, I was around 11 years old when I began to understand that the mountaintop was no place to really live. And I'll tell you what happened. At that age, I had just seen The Nun Story by Audrey Hepburn. And I thought a nun's life was so appealing. Remember, this is pre-boys. And... Uh, you know, just the very thought of just worshiping every day and, and being so kind and wonderful and, and Madonna-like, uh, the earlier Madonna, and, uh, and, and no other concerns and no other cares, that just, this is just how it was. But there were certain barriers to me to pursue that kind of cloistered life. And one, I wasn't Catholic. And, and two, I wanted to wear white go-go boots. And uh, I know that they, you can't wear white go-go boots under those habits. And, and three, I looked awful in hats. And four, I loved television. And it was those reasons that kept me out of the nunnery. 
And then later in life, as I was growing in my faith, I realized that living a, a cloistered life actually makes it much easier to be very spiritual, to be very high-minded and wise and have a peaceful spirit. But it also occurred to me that the greatest challenge to this peaceful and got-it-all-together kind of spiritual mindset would be that you'd have to live in your own head and heart an awful lot. And I don't know about you, but living in my head and my heart all the time is a very scary place to be. And I need to get out of it. And I need to talk to other people and be with other people and engage in the world. I just wasn't cut out for it. And I'm also aware that um, the thought of actually living my ever-after daily life in that setting made me very uncomfortable. And, it, and I began to appreciate that that setting actually was a moment, a moment to go up to the mountain, a moment to encounter this dazzling light, a moment in which I could be, I could be opened wide and it would be nourishing. But, you know, honestly, I've always been drawn to the, um, the muddy brawl, like uh, Jacob wrestling all night long with the messenger. That's what I've, I've, I've always been drawn to that. And wrestling so violently that he put his hip out of joint and limped for the rest of his life. And, and even then, he wouldn't let go of his suffering, hung on tight until he got a blessing out of it. I've always been drawn to that a lot more. And I identify more with the man who proclaims to Jesus, I believe Jesus, so if you could just help me in my unbelief. I always related to that more than I do with a detached piety of someone letting me know that God has a reason for everything. And even if it rips your guts out and lays waste to your spirit, you should accept it with gratitude. I, I, I don't relate to that very well. So when we come to this text, this text of transfiguration, I can understand. There's a part of me, that, that nun story. I can understand Peter's desire to stay on the mountain, to let the beautiful moment of truth become the day and the night without the pull of everything that pulls you apart down in the valley. But I have to tell you, I am so grateful to God for intruding into that moment. So grateful for God, for God saying, wait, 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 pay attention. No, this is my son. You need to listen to him. That's why you're here. I'm so grateful to God, and I am so grateful to Jesus, who was committed to leaving that safe place on the mountain where he was dazzling and shining like an angel and like everything glorious, and he left that, and he came down the mountain, and he saw the everyday routine of our lives sacred and to be cherished and to be infused with God light and whose presence isn't perceived behind some glass wall or vault, that it will never be carbon dated, will never be able to, f to f know for sure that Noah's Ark is on Mount Sinai and all of these, re all these relics that we would love to have. Because sure as, sure as we find them, my friends, we would start worshiping them. So we don't need them. And, but we all need a mountaintop experience now and then. We all need it. We need to go to the mountain and because there's sacred moments when God's presence comes near and assures us or challenges us. And Peter and James and John had just gone through a rough time. I mean, they had gotten so much pushback. 
they, they had been doubting and the authorities had been after them and now people are out trying to kill them and trick them and everything and they needed some assurance. They go up to the mountain, they get the assurance and then they get the voice of God. Then there's just no logical explanation for why uh, God does what God does except it makes perfect sense. When Jesus took Peter and James and John up to the mountainside, they went up to get some perspective, to get 30,000 feet, to get all of that, uh, that language that says to get some clearness. And from there, they could see the whole world. And then the scriptures tell us that they fell down in fear after hearing the voice of God telling them to listen to Jesus, the beloved son. And to be honest with you, there are times when I wonder if their fear wasn't so much of God or were they afraid of what God was saying Jesus was going to tell them they needed to do. That's, that's pretty scary stuff sometimes. I don't want to hear it. I just want to worship God. I just want to, I just want to sing Kumbaya and I want to hold hands and I want, you know, and I want everything to be, you know, nice. No, sorry. Jesus says, sorry, but you got to take up your cross. You lose your life to the gospel and live in order to live. It gets much more basic than that. And so, after they all see and they experience, then what do they do? They make the journey down from the mountaintop, down and return to the valley, because that's where Jesus' ministry is. Jesus' ministry isn't up on the mountaintop. Jesus' ministry is down in the valley. And as the body of Christ, we're called from the mountaintop to the valley. That's where we have our ministry too. That's where we live. And the transfiguration signaled that a new day was on its way in Jesus and that God was moving us toward that beloved community. So going up to the mountain, like Jesus, to pray and to be alone with God is a good thing. It's well advised. You must do it now and then. But also, like Jesus, we are called to come down from the mountain and to live among the people and to care for them and to love them and to heal them and to bring the good news to them. So transfiguration was not so quite so mysterious. We don't understand it, but we do know that it was this loving parent saying once again, this is what I want you to do. Why? Why do you want the very best thing for your child? Let's pray. God, we love you, and we just seek to love you deeper and wider because your mercy and love are so deep and wide for us. You are our God and our Savior, our loving parent. You are the one that held us when we could do nothing but cry. You are the one that holds us when we can do nothing but cry. And you will be the one that welcomes us and holds us for eternity. So we thank you for moments on the mountain. But we are humbly grateful that we minister with you in the valley. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.